0: My alma maters. My name is Greg Sterling. I'm a professor of New Testament and the Dean of Yale Divinity School. So I, I make my living by being a Dean and I follow my heart by being a professor. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's how I describe myself, but it's wonderful to see people I've known for many years here in the audience from California. I grew up in California. uh, And to meet new friends. So thank you for coming. I hope you'll find this provocative. I want to start by telling you two stories that will help you understand why I would like to talk about what I'm going to talk about for the next two days. The first took place early in 1976. I was an intern at a church in Florida and a young couple started attending this church or visited and I was encouraging them to come and one day one of the elders took me off to the side and said, are you sure you want to encourage them to come? They happen to be African-American. And I said, well why wouldn't I? And he was this is in 1976 and he was in his 70s so think about his socialization and he said well what if someday you have children and they have children and then your children date and marry and I said well Charlie in all candor I hope I'm far more concerned about the moral quality of the individual than I am what color skin they have and to his credit, I was, I was all of 20 years old at this time. He was in his 70s. He backed off, and they came uh, to that church. Now let me go to 2015. I was in Beijing giving lectures at some universities, and the Associate Dean of Student Affairs sent me a text saying, you need to see what's going on at Yale. <laughs> and. Two events had occurred, one which I know did in fact happen, the other I've never been sure if it happened, but the one that I knew happened was a committee had sent a memo out to students throughout Yale University urging them to think about the Halloween costumes they would wear that year and to be respectful of various traditions. At the time, we used the term master for the colleges. These are the undergraduate colleges. Just think of them basically. They're more than a residence where undergraduates live because they have uh, a lot of activities associated with these, including academic advising, et cetera. But the associate master, as they were called then, no longer, wrote a note to the college, this undergraduate school, saying, you don't need to worry about what you say, we believe in freedom of expression, and if somebody's offended, too bad. Then there was a report that some young women went to a party at a fraternity and were turned away because of their ethnic identity. What happened was the cameras basically blew up. (laughs) There were people marching through, this It made national news, Uh, marching through the streets, marching across campus, and our students were helping to lead the marches. I was glad they were, uh, personally. But it was a pretty traumatic time. So I called a town hall meeting at the Divinity School, and I said, I will listen, you talk, and we schedule it from 12.30 to 1.30. We finally had to call time at 3 o'clock. And I said, not everyone's spoken who needs to speak. I will meet with people individually, and then I'll respond at a second town hall later. Well, you probably remember this went across, there were other universities that had similar reactions, and it just seemed that it, this was where it started, and then just went out across the country for different reasons in different places. But I'm telling you these two stories because one of the greatest concerns I have right now as a Christian and as an American both is that we are struggling to hold the social fabric of our communities together. And you can talk about red versus blue, you can talk about wealthy versus impoverished, you can talk about different racial tensions, all of those reflect a struggle that we currently face. How are we going to hold the fabric of our communities together? So what I'm going to do in the next two days is give you a scholar's response to that. So this is who I am, and I'm not gonna make any apologies for it, but I hope you will follow with me because there is a real payoff in terms of where we live now. But I'm gonna have to ask you to work with me just a little bit, okay? So we're gonna focus on Ephesians, and today I would like to give you my way of reading Ephesians. And it's a little different, so uh, just bear with me. I wanna start with the paradox about Ephesians. The paradox is, that in the 20th century, many scholars praised Ephesians as the pinnacle of Paul's writings and thought. So, for example, just to quote a few, uh, Edgar J. Goodspeed, some of you will know this name, it's an old name now, called it a great rhapsody on the worth of Christian salvation. C.H. Dodd called it the crown of the Pauline writings. And F.F. F. Bruce, some of us, were my generation grew up reading commentaries written by F.F. F. Bruce, called it the quintessence of Paulinism. Now, I could go on, but you get the idea. People praised it. Now at the same time, people said, this is the summit of Pauline thought. Scholars were also saying, Paul didn't write it. We're not sure Paul wrote it. There was a famous book by a scholar named Mitten in which he pointed out the challenges of thinking about Pauline authorship. For example, he said, you know, there are about 90 words that appear only in Ephesians. Paul normally refers to Satanas, Satan, but Ephesians likes to use ha-diabolos, the devil. And on and on you can go 89 more times. Or if you think of a favorite famous phrase in Ephesians, in the heavenlies, is only in Ephesians. So many, that, those are examples. he pointed out, when you read it, the language is very different. So, you know, scholars will do all these crazy things. You count how many questions in Ephesians versus how many questions are asked in Romans. And there are about twice as many questions in Romans on a per-line basis as there are in Ephesians. You count ratios of nouns and verbs, et etc. et cetera. Uh, Well, that was the argument. But it's interesting to me that at the time that people were praising Ephesians as this great statement of Paul, they were questioning Pauline authorship. So that's the paradox. I'm not going to argue today. If you want to ask me, I'm happy to share my views about authorship, the text is in the New Testament. That's enough as far as I'm concerned. It's sacred scripture in the story. I mean, as a scholar, I have to argue about authorship, and I'll tell you what I think, but it's sacred scripture. As far as I'm concerned, that's where we're going to start. All right, so what I I have done, I, I puzzled over this, and I have the kind of mentality that says, I have to see things for myself. So I sat down and I typed out all of Ephesians in Greek, and then I typed out all of Colossians in Greek, and then I typed out all of what I thought were the parallels in Paul's letters in Greek in a third column and set them up in a synopsis. So if you're thinking of a gospel synopsis, well, I just did this for Ephesians. And what I concluded was that Ephesians knows the letters of Paul very well and uses these letters of Paul in a way that Paul typically doesn't use his earlier works. So we're going to look at three examples today and then I'm going to talk about why this happens and I'll come back to the two stories that I started with. So I, I won't forget that. That's where we're headed. But I want to look at a text from 1 Corinthians to start with. Then I want to look at a text from Colossians and then a text from Romans. Now why these? Well, Colossians is the text, and you'll remember this if you ever took Intro to New Testament, somewhere, you know, back there, if you can dust off those cobwebs a little bit, somebody said something to you like, a third of the vocabulary of Colossians is in Ephesians, or half of the verses of Colossians are in Ephesians, or they asked you to read uh, Colossians 4, 7, and 8, and then look at Ephesians 6, 21 through 22, and pointed out that 32 of the 39 words are identical. You know, I mean, just go through exercises like that. Well, Colossians and Ephesians have a very close relationship. The other two letters which have the closest relationships are 1 Corinthians and Romans. And what I'm interested in doing is I'm not, I'll, we'll look at does, is that actually accurate, but I'm really interested in why. What's going on? That's the real question I want to ask. So let's start. And we're going to start with this first text. And I'm just going to quickly contextualize it for you. And then I'm going to read it uh, quickly. And we're going to walk our way through it. Okay? And I would like for you to participate. I, I really don't want to just be a talking head up here. So this is a close reading of biblical text. And in, in our tradition, I'm obligated to read the text and think about it for myself, but so are you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to agree with me, but we all have to read the text and think about it carefully. So that's what I'm going to try to help us do. So Ephesians starts in a different way. All of you know how Paul's letters begin. So you know if you're going to memorize Paul's letters, it's pretty simple to start. I Paul. So you've got to start. <laughs> Those two words. And you know that after the sender, then you have the recipients, and you have a little greeting, and you have a thanksgiving. And everybody knows that. Well, Ephesians changes this a little bit. The thanksgiving is delayed. It actually has two thanksgivings. It has a barakah, or a blessing, before the thanksgiving proper. So, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, in verse 3. So that's like what we find in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Peter, if you want other examples from the New Testament. But it has this blessing, and that blessing is one sentence in Greek. It's it's actually so long that even in a modern Greek text, it's now broken up. Fortunately for us in English, we have to break it up. Uh, But it's one of those that if you're reading Greek, when you get to the end, (laughs) I made it. (laughs) And verses 15 through 23 are one sentence in Greek as well. So just think of this chapter originally as being two sentences. That's that's a little different than Paul. Paul generally, this is like reading Henry James. You're not reading Ernest Hemingway with little short sentences. You're reading Henry James with these constructions that go on forever. And you have to think about it in a careful way. So it starts, and the first thing that we have in this thanksgiving is what we call a prayer report. It's not an actual prayer, but it's the report of what the author prays. So if you look, because I have heard of the faith you have in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the holy ones or saints, I do not stop giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. Now what do I What am I asking? In my prayers, I ask that God would give you two things. One, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in understanding Him. And two, uh, you'll see I supplied the and. You can debate this construction. Eyes in your heart that have been enlightened so that you may know three things. All introduced by what? What is the hope of His calling? What is the riches of the glory of His inheritance among the saints? And what is the holy What is the surpassing greatness of his power? Now, it's that power that interests us. Because that power becomes the subject of verses 20 through 23 that we're going to look at carefully now. And the argument is, God exercised divine power in Christ in four ways. And in chapter 2, the author will argue God exercised that same power in our lives. So it sets up what God does for us. That's the basic argument. So now let's look at what does God do for us? Or what did God do for Christ? Which, the power, verse 20, He worked in Christ, one, when He raised Him from the dead, Two, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And I'm skipping a little bit, but here are the verbs. He subordinated all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over everything related to the church. So this is how God's power is exercised in Christ. Four ways. So what can we say? where Where does this come from? Well, if you think about when he raised him from the dead... What would you call that? It's a resurrection, yeah, but it's a type of a confessional statement, all right? Uh, I mean, if you think of Romans 10, 9, and 10, or some of the passages many of us memorize as children growing up, uh, you'll recall that stands at the heart of our faith as Christian. When he seated him at his right hand, what text talks about The seating of Christ at God's right hand from the Psalter. Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Very good. That's exactly right. All right, so the first thing that I started thinking about is, well, where else is Psalm 110 used? Uh, Well, it's really interesting that it's also used in 1 Corinthians 15. So, but there's a little change. Psalm 110 reads, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a footstool of your feet. 1 Corinthians 15, it is necessary for him, Christ, to reign until he, God, has set all enemies under his, Christ's feet. The last enemy he will destroy is death. So, it plays on the second half of this, until I place your enemies as a footstool of your feet. Ephesians 1 argues that God seated him at his right hand, which is this first half. Everyone see that? Mm -hmm. But they're both using Psalm 110. Well, Psalm 110 is used in many New Testament texts, so that all by itself isn't shocking. But there it is. We need to note it. The second thing that struck me was over whom does Christ rule in this text? And as I looked at this, one of the things that hit me is he rules above every rule, authority, power. There is only one other place in all of the New Testament where those three are arranged in the same order. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. I thought, hmm, that's pretty interesting now. I mean, that they cite one, Psalm 110 is not... All that's striking. But now it's beginning to look a little more interesting. And then you keep reading and you get this statement down in the text that he has subordinated all things under his feet. Now that sounds like another psalm. Do you remember? Well, it's similar to Psalm 19, but back... Oh, w- psalm, eight. Psalm, eight. psalm 8. Psalm 8. Very good, Tom. Yeah. Uh, it's Psalm 8. But there's a difference. In Psalm 8, speaking of humanity, you subordinated everything under his feet. So the Greek's there for those of you that read Greek. In 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, there are two changes. The second person, you, is changed to the third, he, and the preposition beneath is changed to under. So, who uh, second person, and hupakato becomes hupetaksen, hupa. But what strikes me is that Ephesians has the identical form of this psalm as 1 Corinthians. Now, I have to say, if I get two papers from students, <laughs> and they both draw from one text, well, you know, that they're just paying attention in class. But then I get three things in the same sequence and, and, then, and, and it's a bit odd. And then I get a second text and they're both citing it in a variant form. I become quite suspicious. And generally that means we'd have to have a conversation which they probably don't want to have. Neither do I for that matter. But, but this strikes me that the author of Ephesians has used Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians as a way of saying, how did God exercise divine power in Christ? God raised him from the dead. But just like in 1 Corinthians, he seated him at his right hand and then he subordinated everything under him, including these three listed in the same order. And then Ephesians adds one other thing. And this here goes back to the hymn in Colossians. He made him head over church. all things to the church, which is his body. Uh, and it has this little tagline, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, that's a whole lot like 1 Corinthians 15:28, which is one of those almost unintelligible little statements at the end. And people debate, well, what does this mean? And the truth of the matter is, I don't know exactly. Uh, I think it's a way of saying that God, all things exist in God, and God fills all. Uh, That's how I understand it. We could talk about that if you want. But the point I want to make is this. How do you talk about God's power exercising Christ? This author uses 1 Corinthians 15, which is about whether we will be raised from the dead or not. And the emphasis is, we know Christ was raised from the dead, and as long as he sits at God's right hand, until everything is subordinated under him, we will live or die, and then we will be raised. But this becomes an elevation of Christ over everything, including the church. Now, just hold on to that. We'll we'll come back. All right. First example. Second example. This one's a little more complex, but it's really fascinating. I spent a long time trying to figure this out. This is Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1. uh, And it's a disclosure of the divine mystery. So, again, uh, a mystery here doesn't mean that it's incomprehensible in the sense that it's unintelligible. It means It's a secret that's been hidden, and you only understand it when it's revealed. And there are a series of texts in the New Testament, here they are, that use the same pattern to describe how is God's mystery disclosed. So they all say, they all have to refer to the mystery. They all have a temporal element. In the past, God did this but now, or at a certain time he's revealed, there is the disclosure, there's the group to whom the mystery is revealed, and there's the agent by which the mystery is revealed. Okay, so it's just a, it's a pattern, literary pattern, and you see, that should say Romans 16, by the way. Hmm, uh, not 15, that's Romans 16, it's the little epilogue at the end of Romans 16. Sorry about that. All right but now you'll notice it occurs twice in Ephesians 3 so let me read this to you and let me let's just look at this quickly Um, so Ephesians 3 1 for this reason and now verse 14 for this reason so what you have are some parenthetical markers they're just saying okay i've inserted something between for this reason I started out to tell you, but now I I got off on a little tangent. Now I'm coming back to it in verse 14. All right? So, what's this side discussion? Well, there are three sentences in Greek here verses 1 through 7 are one sentence, verses 8 through 12 are a second sentence, and verse 13 is a third sentence. And the literary structure is. That verses 1 through 7 go together, verses 8 through 13 go together. How do I know that? Well, the author likes to use brackets to mark the structure. So remember that when you, how did people hear this text originally? Yeah, it was read, they heard it read orally. So how do you mark structures? You're not following along with the text which has chapter and verse. You just have to hear it. So they would repeat a refrain, and that refrain would help mark the structure for people listening. So in this case, in verse 2, For if you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, and now verse 7, of which I am a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me. you see the repetition? He's marking something for you. Then you get to verse 8. This grace was given to me the least of all saints. Just like 1 Corinthians 15. And then look at verse 12 or 13. So then I ask that you not do not become discouraged by my troubles. Paul's weakness, Paul's humiliation in, verse both, in both verse 8 and in verse 13. Okay. So what's going on? Well, when you read what happens between, you have the disclosure of the mystery in verses 2 through 7, and then you have a second disclosure of the mystery in verses 8 through 13. They use the same formula, it's just repeated. So if you look in verse 3, that by revelation, there's that word, the mystery was made known to me. Uh, and you can understand it if you read what I wrote to you. And then, in other generations, this was not made known to the children of humans, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then what is this mystery? Well, here it is, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, co-members of the body, and co-participants in the Promising Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery second disclosure in 8 through 13 this grace was given to me to enlighten all what is verse 9 the administration of the mystery that has been hidden from the eons by god who created all things so that the many-sided wisdom of god may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, through the church. You see, all those elements that we describe here are present here and are present here. So I asked myself the question, why two times? I know sometimes we can be dull, may need a little repetition, but why two times? Uh, And I got to thinking about this, and I thought about, well, here it is in the first disclosure, and something else is going on up here. The first time in this first disclosure, it's Paul. Then it's the apostles and prophets. Now I thought about Acts. So is Paul before or after the apostles and prophets in Acts? In terms of getting it. He's after, right? I mean, Peter comes before <laughs> Paul and Acts, right? Uh, so Paul comes later. So what's going on? Is the author... Uh, lost any sense of chronology? I don't think so. I think the author is just saying Paul has a very privileged place in God's plan for saving humanity. That's what this is about. Paul is the architect of what now exists, uh, in effect. So that's why this. Then why this second disclosure that goes to the... uh, RULERS AND AUTHORITIES THESE ARE THE the POWERS OVER WHICH CHRIST RULED RIGHT? IN CHAPTER 1 SO ARE THESE GOOD OR EVIL WHAT ARE THESE RULERS AND AUTHORITIES THEY'RE NOT HUMAN They're, THEY'RE THE CELESTIAL POWERS THAT EXIST OUT THERE IN THIS COSMOLOGICAL FRAMEWORK HOW DO THEY KNOW GOD'S MYSTERY they look down and they look at the church and what do they see in the church? They see all of a sudden all this has been brought together in the church and what was once unthinkable has now become a reality and they realize what God has done. So in the first disclosure, Paul got it and after Paul got it and the apostles and prophets came along the church was created in effect and now these other powers look down on earth and they get it now where does that come from well that really puzzled me for a long time uh, and then I got to looking at Colossians one twenty-six, and I haven't given you all these texts but in Colossians one twenty-six, this is this whole section if you read that carefully you'll see just how close the disclosure of the mystery here is in, in both 2 through 7 and 8 through 13. But Colossians says the mystery that was hidden for eons and four generations is probably a temporal reference. It's just for a long, long time. All right? But the preposition is literally from. And in Ephesians four eons and four generations is split and the generations comes first and the eons these other powers come second so instead of understanding eons as powers they are as just a reference to time they're understood as powers and that's a perfectly legitimate way of reading it so i think that this comes from colossians Uh, And it just split. And it makes good sense because Paul argues for the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews, and now the powers in the heavens can observe it. So, what does this have in common with the first text we looked at with 1 Corinthians? Christ is the head over everything, and that includes the church. And now, how does this fit in? Paul was the key figure to whom Paul God made this disclosure, and now it's visible to all, not just humans, but to supernatural powers as well. That's the argument. One last text, and then we'll uh, come back to our point and then open the floor to questions. So the last text, let me, before I show that, is just a simple description of the Gentiles. So... um, Let's see if... I know I, I can't remember where I... Maybe this is a different... Next, this is a slide tomorrow that'll have this on. It's the baptistry under the Duomo in Milan. I was going to tell you about it, but I'll, I'll co- comment on that tomorrow. But this is a description which says, you once lived like this, but now you're to live like this. So are you, we all know this. Everybody who's here who's a minister has preached text on text like this because you're trying to talk about... What's the meaning of conversion? What's the meaning of baptism? Well, it ought to involve a change in life. Uh, So this is the description of what they once lived like. I say this in witness to it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles live in the worthlessness of their mind, darkened in their intelligence, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart they became calloused and delivered themselves to moral abandon, greedy for the performance of every unclean act. Well, not a very complimentary description. Now, if you were to name a text in the New Testament that you would say this is the text par excellence that describes pagan lifestyle negatively, what would it be? Romans 1. Romans 1. Yeah, I, that's what I would name. Uh, I, I, and what strikes me here is that there are four descriptions of this life. In the worthlessness of their mind, darkened their intelligence, alienated from the life of God for two reasons, and became calloused and delivered themselves to moral abandon. Guess what? All four of these are in Romans 1. Isn't that a surprise? Uh, So if we look at these, uh, Romans 1, they became worthless in their reasonings. Their senseless heart was darkened. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. So this is about idolatry and their alienation from the life of God, I think, is a general description of idolatry. That's the least direct. And then God delivered them, and you know that famous threefold formula. All right, so if you're going to write about how somebody once lived, why not use Romans 1? In certain idle polemic texts, like in Ben Sirach, and things like that, it's interesting that certainly in Ephesians, wisdom is kind of in the background, not as prominently so in Romans. But I was wondering if you could comment any on how uh, the issue of wisdom might be inspiring, drawing from a, a tradition. In the Apocrypha, in the Second Temple Jewish period that Paul might be drawing from here. Yeah. So there's, there's a long history of scholarship that has pointed out that Romans 1 is very similar to Wisdom of Solomon 13 and 14. And uh, where you do have a, a, a very real emphasis on wisdom. And I think because Ephesians is using Romans 1, it's drawing from that same tradition in an indirect way. So you're right, wisdom, and in chapter one, wisdom is mentioned explicitly in Ephesians so that you'll have this understanding. So it is there, uh, and it's drawing out of that common tradition. Yeah, it's it's a good observation, good insight. All right, so now let me come back and then we'll open the floor up, because you've been patient, I know, I've been a little worried this was too technical. <laughs> but uh, I think you have to see it in the text to, to follow. So why does all this happen? Well, here's my attempt to answer that question. I think towards the end of the first century, Christianity had become primarily non-Jewish. I mean, as we started out, we were all, everybody was, A Jew who is a Christian. Who is the central agent who brought about that change? Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. So all of a sudden, now you have this movement with all kinds of congregations. And now there are more Gentiles than Jews. So how are you going to think about this? You know, I I found it interesting in Ireland when the Poles started immigrating into Ireland and started filling the Catholic churches in Ireland, the Irish became religious again. (laughs) They didn't want to lose their own claims to their own ancestral uh, religious identity. Uh, Well, so... That represents a kind of seismic shift. What happens when a religion which starts out with one identity is primarily populated by a different group identity? How do you think of it? Well, I think this author said, Paul is the architect. Paul was God's agent. But Paul's letters were all addressed to specific churches. Even Romans has a specific function. What if we took Paul's letters and universalized their thought, and and made them the theology of all churches? That's what Ephesians is. It's taking Paul's letters and expanding it out so that it's the theology for all of Christianity as we would call it they weren't calling it Christianity then but what the author is trying to do is to give this movement an identity an identity that is through the lens of Paul now in this way it's very similar to Acts so if you think of the story of Luke Acts you have The story of John, followed by Jesus, followed by the 12, culminating in Paul, which brings us to the author's day. And the author is writing from that perspective, trying to understand, how did we get here? And that's the story of how Christianity got there, was through that lens one french scholar today has actually argued that the author of luke acts is the author of ephesians well i'm not persuaded Uh, for one thing in chapter three uh paul is placed in front of peter and the other apostles and prophets in sequence that's not the story of acts so you know the author would have uh, we can, none of us are completely consistent, but that seems like a pretty glaring inconsistency from one author. So I tend to think, no, it's not the author of Luke Acts. But it is entirely indebted to Paul's thought. And it's an attempt to say we can be one, even as we are intended to be. And this is the vision of how that can be achieved. Now, tomorrow I'm going to talk specifically about how that works. That is the oneness. How, how do you actually, how does this author envision that? But what I want you to see today and to realize is if you think about the church, if you think about society and the tensions that pull the fabric of churches apart, that pull the fabric of society apart. What this text is offering is a vision which is intended to bring us together, not lead us apart. It's it's counter to the forces that we all feel acutely in our lives today. And I hope that you can read Ephesians with that in mind.